This is Cultural Mixtapes. I'm Tejas Srinivasan. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we have playwright, screenwriter, and professor Zaid Ayers Dorn. He recently wrote and hosted the new podcast, Mother Country Radicals, for Crooked Media. This podcast is an audio documentary about his parents, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers, who are radical activists in an organization called the Weather Underground. Dorn chronicles the lives of his parents and other weathermen and women as they live on the run from the FBI and take drastic action against the U.S. government. Zaid himself was born underground, and Mother Country Radicals evolves from a story about activists into one about balancing dedication to a cause with family life. Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, and several other members of the Weather Underground are staunchly dedicated to fighting for the goals of their organization, which as you will see from Zaid, are quite complicated. And this poses challenges as they start families. He speaks to several radicals on the podcast who pose different opinions on the acts they committed and often the violence that ensued. The period of time that Dorn chronicles is not dissimilar from what we're seeing today. The revitalized Black Lives Matter movement after the killing of George Floyd, the mobilization around the urgency of gun control, and most recently, the protests following the Supreme Court ruling about abortion rights illustrate a galvanized and provoked public that wants to make their voices heard to effect change. Like most of Zaid's work, this conversation jumps between the personal and the political, and towards the end, we turn toward the future as he reflects on what successful public activism can look like in today's world. Hope you enjoy the show. Zaid Ayers Dorn, thank you so much for being here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Your podcast with Crooked Media, Mother Country Radicals, is a narrative documentary about an organization called The Weather Underground, which your parents were part of, Bernadine Dorn and Bill Ayers. They were revolutionary activists who fought against the United States government for several years. They fought alongside several groups, including the Black Panthers, amongst a number of organizations. And what is quite fascinating is the vast number of causes and institutions your parents fought for and against. So I want to start off by seeing if you could distill the goals of the Weather Underground organization that your parents dedicated their lives to, how would you do it? I would say that there were two main goals. And as you say, that there it, it's more complicated than that. And there were kind of certain objectives along the way. But I would say the organization was founded first and foremost in opposition to the Vietnam War. It, it was a splinter faction coming out of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society, which was the largest anti-war student group in the country at that time. And my mom was its leader, its national secretary. Mm-hmm. Um, and the weathermen were kind of a, a radical offshoot of that group. So the Vietnam War was defining for that generation of young activists. The other thing was the civil rights movement, but more specifically, the kind of radical Black liberation cause. And so, as you said, they worked closely with members of the Black Panther Party, later the Black Liberation Army. And I think for my mom and some of her friends who were, you know, white, young white activists, what was most important was opposing the Vietnam War and putting themselves in a position of solidarity with Black groups like the Panthers who were fighting for the liberation of Black people in America. You talk about in the podcast early how your mother protested with Martin Luther King during the civil rights movement. She met Muhammad Ali. And what fascinates me is that several of the Weather Underground members were protesting in student organizations, as you said, but they sort of diverged from the 
I guess, principles of Martin Luther King and that side of the civil rights movement preaching nonviolence. What do you think caused that to happen? Well, again, it's a complicated question with a complicated answer. I think um, I think it depends how you define Martin Luther King's principles. I mean, I think in certain ways, the sort of nonviolent Dr. King has been sort of uh, become a caricature in American history. And yeah. and and there were certain, you know, he he was much more radical in some ways than than we remember him. But you're right that in certain ways, the Weathermen, but also the Panthers charted a course that was towards more radical, more extreme and sometimes violent action. Um, I think the reasons for that were manifold. One big thing, though, is that the civil rights movement, the peaceful civil rights movement that we remember from documentaries and from, you know, Martin Luther King Day uh, assemblies and stuff was met by the U.S. government and by racist groups in America with increasing levels of violence. So mm -hmm. Dr. King, you know, of course, famously was met with uh, violence at Selma and in various demonstrations met by violent white protesters. But it got worse than that. You know, he was, of course, assassinated by a white nationalist vigilante. And then other members, you know, other successors in, in the black leaders like Malcolm X, like Fred Hampton, like Medgar Evers were also assassinated. And so what happened, I think, is you had this kind of mass movement that had tried for many, many years to do nonviolent marches, voter registration drives, direct action, sit-ins, all these kinds of things we think of as the peaceful, nonviolent civil rights movement. And they were met with violence and in some cases, many cases were killed for those actions. So you had a, a section of the movement that decided if the state is going to be violent towards us, if police are going to assassinate Fred Hampton in his bed, we have to get more violent. We have to you know, fight fire with fire. And do you know if there's a specific event or a series of events in a certain time period that sort of prompted that? You mentioned Fred Hampton's assassination. I think for my mom, it was the combination of Martin Luther King's assassination and then Fred Hampton's murder that really convinced her in some way that she, as a white woman, had a responsibility to do more, to risk her own life, to you know, make a louder noise and basically to draw some of the attention of American law enforcement away from black freedom leaders and onto people like her who had the privilege and the visibility that would make it maybe harder for the FBI or the police to target somebody like her with assassination. I mean, Fred Hampton was literally killed by Chicago police, murdered in his bed with the help of FBI and FBI informants. And so I think for a lot of people, they thought, well, if the government is willing to, you know, just do this extrajudicial murder, literally just kill a leader of whom they disapprove, well, we have to do a lot more than just kind of hold signs and, and marches. It's interesting that you bring up that your mom and a bunch of other white activists were so galvanized by this cause, which did not seem to be the norm back then. What do you mm -hmm. think led to that specifically? And I mean, obviously, it's much more common now, but what do you think led to that back then? Yeah, I think in some ways they were in unusual people. I mean, I spend a lot of time in the podcast, you know, trying to understand what made my mom who, you know, she was half Jewish, daughter of kind of middle class people, grew up in a small town in Wisconsin and, you know, was a for her childhood, really an all American kid, got good grades, was a cheerleader. And so what made somebody like that decide that it was her responsibility to risk her life for the liberation of black people and to fight white supremacy. It's weird and it's complicated. And as you say, it's unusual. I think 
part of it is characterological. She is a uniquely morally committed person. When she thinks something's right, she goes for it all the way. And that's something I you know, lived with my whole yeah. life as her kid. So in that sense, there were probably others at the time who could see that white supremacy and racism were big problems, but who weren't willing to risk their lives on that altar. So she was a unique person in that way. But I would also say there were, it was a time like today when white people who maybe hadn't noticed what was going on around them before were looking around and saying, this is worse than I thought. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. seemed like he was trying to do the right thing and then he was killed. So what's going on in this country? So I think it woke a lot of people up just like George Floyd's murder woke people up in our own time. Yeah. One of the biggest costs that you talk about in the podcast is obviously family. And you talk to your friends who are also children of weathermen and women. First, for you, what was it like growing up on the run from the FBI as the son of weathermen? <laughs> yeah, it was um, it was strange. And, and you know, I mean, I tell some stories on the podcast about some of that strangeness. I mean, and, and in a way, one of the strangest things about it is that it all felt pretty normal to me at the time. I, you know, when you're a kid, you grow up in a in a strange situation. You don't have much of a frame of reference or anything to compare it to. So for me, my parents told me when I was three or four years old that the FBI was chasing us. I knew that uh, we were using fake names. I knew that we were on the run. Never seemed that weird to me, partly because they told it to me in a very matter of fact way. And partly because honestly, the people I knew were also on the run. Some of my best yeah. friends were the children of Weathermen and the children of Black Panthers who were also underground. So we had our own little world where it didn't seem all that strange. But of course, looking back, it's incredibly strange. And, you know, I remember moments, you know, when I was four or five years old, my dad teaching me how to recognize undercover police. I remember moments when we were almost caught, moments when we had to pack up our house very quickly and run because our address might have been compromised. So, yeah, there were moments of real strangeness in there. In terms of looking back, um, obviously a moment where your parents were kind of pushed back into the spotlight was during the 2008 campaign when Barack Obama was criticized by both Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton because of his association with your parents. First of all, how did Obama cross paths with your parents? And second, what was it like being thrust back into the media in your childhood, essentially revisited? There were a bunch of things happened, but the main thing is that I grew up, I went to high school in Hyde Park, south side of Chicago. My parents still live there and Barack Obama was our state senator. So he, you know, was a politician in our neighborhood who you'd see at events and he would be at fundraisers and come to things in our neighborhood. And so people knew him and he knew people. He was a politician. He was a very friendly, very generous, very gregarious person. So yeah. you would run into him. My parents by that time, by the 2000s, had lived pretty normal lives for a couple of decades. And they were actually quite prominent citizens in the progressive left in Chicago. So, mm -hmm. you know, my dad was a big school reform advocate. My mom was a lawyer who worked on juvenile justice issues. So they ran in the same circles. Um, my parents held a fundraiser for then state Senator Obama in our living room. And he did a lot of fundraisers like that. And he knew a lot of people in our neighborhood and he knew my parents. Um, of course, once he ran for president and the opposition researchers started digging into his past and they found out that he had had this fundraiser in the house of these former terrorists, they decided to make that a campaign issue. But at the time, you know, it wasn't that strange. They knew everybody. They knew the mayor. They knew 
the senators. They knew all the, the kind of left progressive politicians in Chicago. Kind of switching gears to your experience revisiting this issue. It's as much a story of you and your friends who were also children of weathermen as it is a documentary about your parents. You were telling a story about people so close to you, and you even reflect that you thought your parents weren't involved in events after you were born, but then you talk about how that changed. What was the experience like researching this story, balancing personal memories and conversations with family members, and then research into the actual event itself? That was really one of the big challenges of the project is that obviously I'm very close to the story. It's mostly about people I know very well, members of my family, um, close friends of my family. And yet I felt a, a responsibility if I was going to do the project as a writer, as a journalist, as a historian, to be honest about it, to get the real story, to understand what really happened. So a lot of it was trying to figure out in my own mind, you know, what I believed, what I'd been told, what was real. And like any kid kind of digging back into the family history, you find things that surprise you. You know, you find photographs that seem different than how you'd remembered things, or you find old letters or journals and you think, oh, that my parents had a life before me that I didn't know about. That definitely happened to me working on this podcast. I mean, I found things my parents had written, things they had said that really surprised me. And I also talked to them about those things and tried to kind of understand in my own mind, you know, who they had been, who they'd become, the mistakes they'd made along the way. And yeah, it was a challenge, but it was also one of the really satisfying things about the project, really delving into the complexity of my own family and American history and trying to sort out what was true from what wasn't. Do you think you being close to the story and in many cases part of the story helped the final product? I do. I mean, first of all, I don't think anybody else has the access that I had to you know, talk yeah. to people in the way I do. I mean, it's a, quite an intimate story, even though it's it's got a lot of epic historical sweep to it. But yeah. the, the way I tell it is you know, about people I know, people who are very close to me and close to each other. And so you get a view of them that you might not otherwise get. Half the podcast is about the children of the radicals and what happened to them, not just me but people like Kakuya Shakur, who I speak to in the, on the podcast, who's Asada Shakur's daughter. Asada, of course, was the you know very prominent leader in the Black Liberation Army, who's still underground in Cuba to this day. So speaking to people like Kakuya, who'd had a kind of a similar experience to my own, growing up the child of a radical, a revolutionary, and then kind of having to deal with the consequences of that, losing your parents in certain ways, it did become a lot about not just the history of American radicalism, but the history of what that does to families and how children are asked to sort of shoulder the burdens of their parents' political activism. On the topic of children, at the very end, you have a conversation with your daughter. And I think she puts it best when she said that it unsettled her to think about a father who cared more about sticking it to the man than his own sons. Mm -hmm. And it's an important question throughout. So amongst the people underground that you talk to, not just your parents, what did you see with regards to how they thought about balancing their families and their commitment to the cause? And how did that change reflecting on it? Yeah, well, for one thing, I'm mean, one thing that I realized working on the project is how young most of these people had been when they started their activism. I mean, my parents were in their early to mid 20s when they became kind of prominent radicals. Certain people I spoke to, like Jamal Joseph, who's a former Black Panther, was 16, 15 when he joined the Panthers, 16 when he went to prison for the first time. So these are people who, like, 
started in the movement as almost as kids themselves. And then over the course of a decade and more, first as activists, then as radical revolutionaries on the run from the FBI, they grew up a lot and they ended up people in their late 20s, early 30s, thinking about having families of their own. As you said, they had to really think about how do I balance my commitments that I've made as a political person with the fact that I want to have a family, I want to be a grown-up, I want to be a parent. And I think that balance was very tricky. And for some people actually ended up ending in, in real tragedy in the sense that some people decided to have children while they were still engaged in this kind of violent revolutionary activity. Mm-hmm. And some of those people went to prison. Some of those people had to stay underground for decades. Many of those people were separated from their children. So yeah, I think a lot of it ends up being about what people are willing to risk and sacrifice for what they believe. My daughter has an interesting take on it. And for me, that the central question really was, how can I try to understand my parents, given that I know they loved me, I know they took care of me, but I also know that they had this other commitment, this profound commitment that was sometimes in conflict with their responsibility as parents. When they looked back on their opposing commitments, did they, did their minds change looking back on it now or was it ambiguous? Yeah. I think their minds changed, but I think they still, and I'm, and I ask them and so in the last episode of the series, you know, I ask everybody, not just my parents, but all of the people involved kind of, do you have regrets? Has your mind changed? What do you think about it now? And their answers are really interesting. But I would say one common thread is that almost everybody says something like, you know, I regret a lot of the things I did. I regret a lot of people who were hurt, but I can't regret being on the right side of history, putting everything I have into the fight against racism, against imperialism. So, you know, I think for them, it's a really complicated question about regret and about how they look back. On the one hand, they see all the tragic mistakes they made. And on the other hand, they feel in some profound sense like they got the big questions right. You were working on this project simultaneously with when we saw a revitalized Black Lives Matter movement after the killing of George Floyd, amongst other people. Mm -hmm. And the actions being taken today are not as drastic as the ones your parents took. But after diving deep into how you mentioned the moment they switched into realizing perhaps violence was necessary then, Are you seeing similar threads in today's events that from your research you think could eventually galvanize people in the same way or similar ways? I worry about it. I mean, I think what you realize looking back at that time is that student activists had worked for almost a decade to oppose the Vietnam War. Civil rights activists had worked for decades and and more centuries to, to try to achieve some liberation for their people. And what they felt at the end of the 1960s was profound frustration and disillusionment with the system, right? They they had tried all the things they could think of to try to make change, and they thought that change was necessary. They thought the world was on fire. They, they knew that thousands of people every week were being killed in Vietnam, and people were being hurt and brutalized and killed here at home, Black people who were working for civil rights. So I think they got more and more frustrated. And I think they ended up, some of them deciding, like, we have to do more, even if we think it's crazy, even if what we're doing is not, you know, who we are or who we were raised to be, we have to do something. And I think right now what we're seeing is some real great energy among young people around Black Lives Matter, around climate. And yet we are also seeing sometimes profound disillusionment. You know, how many times do young people have to march 
for our lives and and you know oppose gun violence and find that not only are we not getting more gun control legislation but if anything the country is is loosening its restrictions on deadly weapons so i think yeah. that kind of frustration and feeling of banging your head against a wall leads to disillusionment that can lead to uh, you know increased radicalism it's interesting you say that because listening to your podcast i was reminded of something the scholar eddie gloud wrote in his book in a shade of blue your mom probably won't like this as she says <laughs> men are very good at radical wordsmithing yeah, um yeah. But essentially, he says that activists today have to contend with the weight of the 60s, and we live in a different moment made possible by that time, but our politics are not reducible to that moment of struggle. And he essentially challenges readers to imagine and innovate new ways to contend with today's world. After working on this project, what's your read on, I guess, the effectiveness and feasibility of these constant protests for justice? You mentioned all the big ticket issues now, race, gun violence, I would add mm -hmm. abortion rights to the mix. Mm -hmm. What's your read on the effectiveness of these things? Well, it depends what you mean by these things. I think we haven't seen in recent history, you know, much good come out of kind of political violence or, yeah. or terrorist acts. On the other hand, I think there's a lot to be said for what you might call ethical lawbreaking and organizing outside of the um, legal process. And by that, I mean, you know, you mentioned abortion. If the courts and the Supreme Court has been, I think, utterly corrupted, both by process and by design, you know, if the courts and the legislature are go are unable to protect a women's right to choose, I think you are going to see a revitalized underground of people, doctors and women and allies, men, who are willing to break those laws in order to see that people have the human rights that 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 they deserve. So, you know, I think lawbreaking is sometimes part of that kind of important activism. But I think the quote you read is is true. People have to innovate new solutions to meet current problems. And I think one way the radicals I interview in the show, many of them end by saying we hope that this new generation can do better than we did. We hope they can come up with things that we couldn't think of and change the world you know more effectively wonderful and you don't have to answer this if you don't want to but do your parents agree with that sentiment <laughs> i think so i mean i i don't want to speak for them but i mm -hmm. i definitely think that they look with a lot of hope towards today's young activists they're very conscious of like not wanting to be the old people telling young people how to do things i think they're very yeah. excited by the energy they see in today's progressive left young people kind of out on the streets demanding change and I think they would say very clearly, like, you can look to the past for some lessons, but don't look for everything. You know, you have to make your own change and, and do it better than we did it. I want to switch over to your dramatic work. Um, first of all, what initially drew you to plays? I think I think I always knew I wanted to be a writer. Just I was one of those kids who, like, was very into books and felt seen and heard by writers more than by anything else. And I knew I wanted to be a part of that club, you know, people who write things that resonate in somebody else. From my very first memories, I knew I wanted to be a writer. It wasn't really until I got to college that I took a playwriting course. And I thought, you know, this is actually the kind of writing I like doing. I don't like spending a lot of time describing scenes and landscapes and, and you know, internal monologues. I like writing, what people do, what they say, the actions they take. And that's what theater and film are good at is dramatizing action. And so, yeah, I think sometime in college, I started realizing plays had the sort of distilled human 
tension that I was most drawn to in writing. And I wrote my first play in college and then ended up going to grad school for playwriting. Your play, I believe most recent play, The Profane, is about two immigrant Muslim families whose kids are getting engaged. One family is more westernized, I would say not really strict about their Muslim faith, while the other is still a little more orthodox in their ways. How did you start thinking about writing this topic specifically? I think it came, like most of my work, out of a um, a sort of a collision between something I was seeing in my personal life or something I felt very close to personally, and then something I was seeing in the wider culture. You know, it's always interesting to me where the personal and the political kind of collide, and most of my work comes out of that collision. So that play, yeah, it came out of people I knew in my own life and close to me who were kind of wrestling with these issues. And it wasn't just one family. It was several different people I knew who were wrestling with the fact that a generation of kind of somewhat progressive, somewhat secular people had had children who, as they grew up, embraced religion in a, in a, in a more kind of fundamental way. And I found that tension really interesting. And I thought we were also in a moment. I mean, I wrote that play in, I forget, you know, 2008, 2009, something like that. And I was thinking about how kind of religious fundamentalism is defining so much of our culture and the kind of clash between religious fundamentalism and secularism. And I just thought it'd be interesting because, you know, you hear all these stories about parents who are conservative and then their kids rebel and are more secular. But actually, I was seeing sometimes the opposite, and I thought that would be an interesting thing to dramatize. And you capture such a nuanced experience of immigrant families. Did you look anywhere for inspiration besides your own experiences and people you were talking to? Yeah, I mean, I, I did. You know, first of all, I, I personally, there was there were some families that are very close to my family that were going through some of these issues, and I knew them pretty well. I'd grown up with some of them, so I felt like I could get inside their heads or, or write versions of them. And then there were also, you know, yeah, I did some research, talked to some people who had grown up in cultures that were different from mine and and tried to think through, like, what was the version I, I could write? Who were the people I know? You know, as a playwright, the only way to write characters is to find versions that kind of exist in you that you feel like you can channel in some way. So for me, it was partly a matter of people I'd grown up with, people I knew, and partly a matter of like, what were the parts of them that echoed in my own family, that echoed in in families I'd grown up in, and figuring out how to write it that way. And when you're writing this play or in other plays, and you're thinking about specific characters and how to embody them, are you writing for a specific person in your mind? Or is it more like a novel where you're kind of trying to create a world within which these people live? I think it's a weird, one of those weird, uh, hard to describe things, the way you channel something when you're writing. I mean, for me, I've always been somebody who kind of heard things or could kind of, when I when I imagine conversations, they feel very vivid to me. And when I get in the right frame of mind, I feel like I'm really listening to conversations between people I've invented. It's a, it's a kind of an artistic schizophrenia that you feel. It starts to feel like the character's tell you what they're going to say and you don't tell them. That's when it's working well. You know, like any writer, I have times when I stare at a blank page and nothing happens. Um, But when it's working well, it's a feeling of you create these characters who feel like versions of people you know or versions of people you can imagine. 
And then they start talking in your head and you write it down. And when it's going really well, it feels like transcription. It feels like you're just kind of writing it down as they say it. Have you ever stepped across the line to acting or no? <laughs> Only accidentally and unwillingly. I mean, I, I've been in a couple of plays of friends of mine and teachers. When I was at the Juilliard School as a grad student, um, my teacher, Marsha Norman, cast me in a play of hers at the Kennedy Center. So that was a kind of the biggest play I ever did. But it was by accident. I don't consider myself an actor in any way. Then last question relating to your podcast. There have been lots of fiction about the time your parents were active in the underground. There's the Robert Redford film, The Company You Keep, and then the recent Sorkin film with the trial of the Chicago 7, which kind of talks around them, but focuses on Abby Hoffman and Tom Hayden. Yeah. And your podcast seems to, for me personally, it seems to be much more provocative and compelling as someone who does both fiction with your plays and obviously now this nonfiction work. Would you ever explore writing fiction about this time or no? Yeah, I'm actually working on an adaptation oh. of Mother Country Radicals that that would be for for the screen, like a, a scripted oh. version. But I thought it was important to do this version first because, you know, partly for me, it's research. It's it's a way of kind of making sure I fully understand the world I grew up in and also having the kind of material to draw on. Once you start fictionalizing something or kind of dramatizing it, you want to really feel like you know that world. So, I, yeah, I'm excited about the idea of a scripted adaptation, but I thought the documentary nonfiction version was important to get out into the world first. Wonderful. And then lastly, same question throughout, what have you been reading, watching, and listening to lately that you've been excited about? Mm, there's so many things, so many good things out there. I've been loving the show Atlanta on TV, podcasts. I've been listening to a show called Wild Boys that I like quite a bit, a show called In the Dark, kind of an investigative journalism podcast that I love. I read a book called The Topeka School that I loved. Um, I've been reading some old stuff, some Charles Dickens and and uh, Jane Austen. Ooh. A lot of things out there that are that are really exciting that people are making. Wonderful. I believe that is all. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's great to talk to you. And that's our show. Special thanks to Zaid Dorn for joining me on this episode. To listen to Mother Country Radicals and see a list of his recommendations, visit the show notes. Cultural Mixtapes is written and produced by me, Teja Srinivasan. The music you heard on today's episode was Beethoven's Sonata No. 26 and Chopin's Sonata No. 2, recorded by me. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe, review, and share on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen. Thank you very much for listening.